0: Welcome back to Trenus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And honestly, guys, it really could have gone either way this week because of the fact that my daughter, at the time that I record this, my daughter is due virtually any minute now, you know? And so, for that reason, it really... It's really cast a lot of doubt on my ability to continue meeting a weekly release for Trenus Magnus Punches Reality, because let's face it, when you've got a newborn in the house, I mean, I don't know this to be true yet, but my guess is you're probably not gonna have a whole lot of time to sit around and record podcasts. We shall see. But in the here and now, one of the things that I wanted to do is shine a light on the Halloween series of movies. Now, it's probably not going to be news to very many people that I'm a huge fan of these movies. I love them. Some, obviously, more than others, but still. In the main, I really enjoy the Halloween series. I like Michael Myers as a character. And one of the things that I've made a kind of an infrequent habit of Uh, Doing is that usually sometime in the fall each year, what I try to do, I'm not always successful, but what I try to do is do at least one episode about one of the Halloween movies and just let the chips fall where they may. And this year, I was kind of at a loss as to, originally, I was kind of at a loss as to what to do. And this was even before I found out that, that my wife was going to have a baby. I was sort of at, kind of at an impasse. I really didn't know what I wanted to do for this year's Halloween movie episode. Do I want to talk about... Uh, how, trying to find a polite way to say this. Do I want to talk about Halloween 2018 and the way that my feelings about that movie have kind of shifted? Or do I want to go back into the past and look at one of the older Halloween movies and maybe talk about that? And oddly enough, uh, fate ended up sort of taking care of that for me because of the fact that the lockdown has uh, locked down movie theaters as well as people. It's just not very easy to go to movie theaters these days. And so it kind of raises the question of, what is the future of movie exhibition going forward you know in the in the in the post covid world like what is that going to be like and at least right now nobody really seems to know but what we know for sure is that there was a halloween movie that was supposed to come out this year and it has been delayed for at least a year and so Whereas I was originally thinking about talking about Halloween 2018 and maybe giving that another look and maybe going into a little bit why it is that my feelings about that film have shifted, the imperative to do so has kind of gone away since the new Halloween movie that was supposed to come out this year, like I say, has been delayed. But then that does kind of raise the question, well, what should I talk about? And so... Something that I kind of hinted at in some previous episode I did about a Halloween movie, I mentioned Halloween H2O, which is a stupid name for this movie, but whatever. I mentioned Halloween H2O and how I had a, a little bit of a hot take on that, that I at least haven't seen in very many other, in fact, no other place. And so I thought maybe it would be fun to sort of revisit that, but... Before I get into Halloween, I, you know what, I'm just going to call it 20 years later, or, or maybe H20, or because H20 is just a fucking stupid title, and uh, whoever thought of that really should be fired. But before I get into that, I want to I want to take you guys back a little bit and just kind of walk you through my logic here, all right? Now, in terms of all of the different Halloween movies that have ever been made, the the entirety of the series i dare say it's not an exaggeration to say that the halloween franchise has been the most uh retconned uh warm rebooted hard rebooted unrebooted this has been just the the most committee-banged film series in history and so you kind of need to know what the fuck you're doing to watch any of these movies and at least for me in terms of my personal favorites we need to make a few things clear up front all right one of which is it is obvious it is undeniable that the best halloween movie is by far hands down clear as crystal far and away 1978 original all right i like i say some movies are better than others but there's no serious argument as to what the best Halloween movie is. We all know that it's the original and I at least am not really interested in arguing that. But I do think there's considerable merit to debating okay, aside from the original, which of the subsequent Halloween movies is the best? And for me, it really does come down to Halloween 4, you right? So With Halloween 4, you've got a little bit of a course correction going on here. There was the original movie. It was a big hit. There was Halloween 2, which at the time was intended to wrap up the Michael Myers story. There was Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which its title notwithstanding really has nothing to do with the Halloween movie series as we know it today, because The Halloween movie series, as we know it today, technically was never actually intended to exist. Rather, the Halloween movie series was intended to be a series of scary movies that that all, in some way or another, relate to Halloween. And Season of the Witch was just such a bomb, and it was just such a letdown for so many people that the producer said, okay, you know what? Fuck the original plan. We're bringing Michael Myers back and we're going to continue that storyline, even though, in a sense, it's already been completed. And so they did. And the end, end result of that is Halloween 4. Now, guys, I don't do movie commentaries about just anything, but I did do one about Halloween 4, and I fucking love Halloween 4. I'm not going to sit here and tell you with a straight face it's the greatest movie that's ever been made. And as I was saying just a minute ago, I am sure as shit not arguing that it's better than the original. Nothing is better than the original. But Halloween 4, it is a distant second. I have no hesitation in saying that. It is a distant second place. And such a big hit was it that it spawned sequels that I think may be the best way to describe Halloween numbers 5 and 6 is diminishing returns. Halloween 4 is great. Halloween 5, it's just really good. And Halloween 6, whether it's the producer's cut or the three the, uh, theatrical cut, Halloween 6 is just a big ball of what the fuck. And... Nevertheless, Halloween 6 does do something, okay? It ends, I guess, that sort of trilogy that had been going on that started in Halloween 4, goes right on through Halloween 5, and then finishes up, we're told, in Halloween 6. And Halloween 6, it was just a big letdown for fans, for critics, for wide audiences, for everybody. To the best of my knowledge, which isn't really saying very much, but to the best of my knowledge, there's nobody out there who's going to tell you that Halloween 6 is the best, or even the second best, in this entire series. And again, that's whether we're talking about the producer's cut or the theatrical cut. Yes, there is an argument that the... the. Uh, Producers' cut does have certain advantages over the theatrical cut, but it's like, no matter how you look at it, both of them kind of suck. And so it's not, to me, it's not really worth arguing about which one sucks less. And so whatever happened, happened. And the future of the Halloween franchise was very much in doubt. The next movie, in fact, was going to be straight to video. And that may have been, <clears throat> excuse me, that may have been Halloween's ultimate fate, you know, uh, and kind of an ignominious fate, I would say. You know, it went from being the original slasher film, the granddaddy of them all, to now straight to video, you know. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. But And that may have been the way that things turned out, except Jamie Lee Curtis got a wild hair to do another Halloween movie. She called up the the producers of the movie and said, hey, I don't know what you've got in mind for the next Halloween movie, but whatever it is, I want in. How can we do this? And so that pretty much put the kibosh on doing the next Halloween film straight to video. Now all at once, Halloween is right back to big screen. Um, and it's got Jamie Lee Curtis along for the ride, but there's a promise to it. And the promise of Halloween H20 or 20 years later, whatever the hell you want to call it, the promise of that film is that it's a sequel not to Halloween 6. It is a sequel to Halloween 2. Basically, it picks up 20 years after uh, Lori Strode had what I can only call one hell of a bad night that began in the first Halloween movie and then concluded in the second Halloween movie. And so she basically faked her death, went into hiding, and came up for air in the state of California, where she lives under an assumed name, and works as a, I guess, as a, uh, as a teacher in a prestigious California boarding school. All right. The events of this movie completely ignore Halloween's four. Well, I guess to to be thorough, Halloween's three, four, five, and six. It picks up sort of as a as a sequel, like I say, to Halloween two and continues the story from there. Lori Lori Strode is a is a serious wreck and she and her son I don't think they've developed the most stable family unit that you've ever seen. And of course, we all know Michael Myers is going to somehow track her down. And as I say, what we're told is that Halloween H20 is a clean break. From what's come before. It totally ignores the events specifically of Halloween's 4, 5, and 6, right? That's how it starts. And yet, that is not really how it starts. The way that the movie starts basically, uh, uh, Michael Myers tracks down the nurse from the original film, the one that drove Loomis to uh, the sanitarium where Michael Myers made his escape that nurse the one driving driving the uh car michael myers tracks her down and basically uses her files to get intel on lori strode's uh whereabouts after which he he tracks her down to new york and and or not new york he uh, tracks her down to uh, california and that's where he makes makes his move and the thing about this is If you watch the opening credits for Halloween H20, and I mean you pay very close attention to them, all of the newspaper articles and microfiche and all the other shit that's showing up on screen, you pay really close attention to the opening credits of Halloween H20. And it's not... You know what? It's actually not very clear, really, at all, that. This is a sequel to Halloween 2 as opposed to Halloween 6. Another, and I mean just specifically, uh, like an example of what I'm talking about, about, uh, I would say, 11, according to my counter here, it's uh, 11 minutes, 41 seconds into the movie. We're in the middle of the opening credits. There's a newspaper headline that says, Babysitter Killer on the Loose. Well, there's only one night that Michael Myers killed babysitters, and that was in the original film. There really wouldn't have been... If we if we take the basic premise of this movie literally, there's really no other occasion when newspapers would have printed a headline saying, Babysitter Killer on the loose. They would never have printed that. If... Nothing happened after Halloween 2, that is. But if the events of Halloween 4, 5, and 6 happened, you know what? Yeah, they they probably would print a headline like that. And so, like, right there, that casts a little bit of doubt. And I'm talking totally headcanon here. I mean, the intentions of the filmmaker, they are what they are. But nevertheless, I, I'm, in terms of my headcanon, you know, the more things go on with this, the harder time I'm having... with seeing Halloween H20 as a, like I say, as a warm reboot of, or not a reboot, as a as sort of a retcon of what had come before. There's another point in the opening credits for Halloween H20 where <clears throat> there's I'm not sure if this is from supposed to be from a magazine or it's a web page printout or what, but there's a piece of paper that says, "Dr. Sam Loomis, world-renowned authority on deviant psych- uh, psychosocial behavior, sat down with Psychology Review recently to discuss his 30 years of practice." Dr. Loomis gained international fame treating then six-year-old Michael Myers, the so-called Halloween killer. Myers is a, was only one of the mass murderers. Uh, that Doctor Loomis has treated over his uh, distinguished career. Well, that by itself doesn't necessarily uh, uh, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that something happened after Halloween H twenty or a, or rather after Halloween two, but it does suggest that there is business that's going on here. Uh, that Loomis was not just a just a random passerby in all of this uh, Michael Myers murder spree craziness you know he really did have a little bit more of an active hand uh, to play in all of this and uh, as the uh, opening credits continue we see uh, uh, more and more photos Uh, we see uh, newspaper headlines and then we get a a headline here where it says the survivor of, ha- of Halloween murders killed an auto accident. And this is basically Laurie Strode's cover story. All right. And what I remember of Halloween 4, it's said that Laurie Strode died in a car crash. Well, here we see that we see a newspaper headline saying that Laurie Strode died in a car crash, and so we can surmise, I think, that she faked her death, and then she went into hiding, and she was so serious about going into hiding, guys, she left Jamie behind. Now, my way of sort of rationalizing this is her son, John, he was really too old to be left behind and given up for adoption. She had to take him with her. But Jamie, Jamie was young enough that she could get uh put up for adoption and she wouldn't she wouldn't really have memories of of her mother, at least not clear ones, not enough that are that, that are gonna destroy her life. And so the more this thing unwinds. And all of this sort of came to me during my last rewatch of Halloween H20. The more this thing just sort of unfolds, the more you think, oh my God, what if Halloween H20, it's not a sequel to Halloween 2. It's actually a sequel to Halloween 6. Because the, the opening credits certainly allow for that. But I'm going to go one better on all of this. I'm going to suggest to you that Halloween 6 allows for this as well, because what happens in Halloween 6? Well, spoiler alert, but one of the, the big moments at the end of the movie, whether this is the producer's cut or the theatrical cut, but especially, I would say, the theatrical cut, Michael Myers basically breaks breaks free of the Thorn cult, all right? That's what happens. And so as a result, he's still Michael Myers with everything that implies. He's simply no longer a servant of the cult. And so the movie Halloween 6, whether it's the theatrical cut or the producer's cut, the movies end with Michael Myers basically hitting the road. He's out. And where does he go? Well, if we take the, the filmmakers of Halloween H20... At their word, he just rode off into the sunset, never to be seen or heard from again. But where's the fun in that? I'm going to suggest to you guys that what, what he did immediately after Halloween 6, he tracked down the nurse, killed her, rifled through her files, found intel on Laurie Strode's whereabouts, and then from there, hauled balls out to California to settle Laurie Strode's hash once and for all. And that is where we pick up in Halloween H20. Now, that's totally headcanon. I can't sit here and argue against the intentions of the the, the screenwriters and the directors, the actors. They, they are all convinced that this movie is a clean break. This movie is a sequel to Halloween 2. This movie, Halloween H20, this is basically Halloween 3. It is not Halloween 7. But it could be Halloween 7 and you don't have to change anything except your point of view. All you have to do is just ignore what everyone else is saying and just look at the evidence. And the evidence pretty clearly suggests this, not only is this compatible with everything that's come before, you could even see this as an intentional uh, continuation of everything that's come before. And so again, I'm not trying to tell anybody involved with the production of this movie that they're wrong, that I know better than they do, or anything like that. I'm just saying that this need not be the hard break that it's presented as. And so you're sitting there, you're listening to me say all this stuff. Don't take my word for it. What I want is for you to go back and watch... Halloween 4, 5, and 6, just get through them as best you can. Then after that, spin up Halloween H20, and you tell me, does it really feel like Halloween H20 doesn't fit in with what's come before? I'm not saying that you have to like Halloween 4, 5, and 6, although I love Halloween 4, but I'm not saying you have to like 4, 5, and 6. I'm simply asking, do you see narrative compatibility between those three movies and Halloween H20. And I can't speak for anybody else, but I see a hell of a lot of narrative compatibility between between those films. And so anyway, there you go. Now, one of the reasons that I I sort of enjoy Halloween H20, especially as time goes on, one of the reasons that I that I enjoy this, it is partly for nostalgia, all right? Halloween H20 is not the first Halloween movie that I ever saw, as I've said before, that honor. That goes to Halloween 4, and I want to say that was Halloween night, 1989. I could be wrong, but that feels right, and that was my introduction to the Halloween franchise, and honestly, I mean, quite understandably, I missed Halloween 5 and 6. And so the next one that I watched was Halloween H20 and adored it. You know, it was, I didn't see it in theaters because, you know, I was a teenager, didn't see a lot of movies in theaters, but I did catch it on home video and loved Halloween H20. It's, I I just thought it was a great, fun little romp. And it is true that it's less of a horror movie than the original. And I would say even less than Halloween 4. Halloween 4 does try to be a horror movie. And I can even say, I, I can even extend that to Halloween 5 and somewhat to Halloween 6. They do try to be horror movies. And Halloween H20, it is a horror movie, but in that very Kevin Williamson kind of scream sort of idiom of late 1990s horror movies where, yeah, some people get poked with a knife and all that stuff, but this isn't horror. Does that make sense? This isn't a a movie that's necessarily out to keep you on the edge of your seat. It's as much as anything it's meant to entertain you. And... I understand that, I acknowledge that, I agree with that, but it's the fact that this isn't a horror movie, a slasher movie in the strictest, purest sense of the term, That's not. that doesn't really detract too much of anything, at least for me. Can't speak for anyone else, but at least for me, that's not really too much of a black mark. Now, what is kind of a black mark and you can put this down to me being nitpicky or whatever else, but I'm of the opinion that Michael Myers is not entirely human. I kind of I almost have a similar view of him as I do The Shadow. Because I love The Shadow. And the ambiguity and the mystery of the Shadow, this person, he is not. Completely human. He's not completely supernatural or paranormal or whatever. Not completely human, though, either, you know? And I would say the same thing is true of Michael Myers. He is not completely human. And for me, one of the biggest. Yeah. One of the biggest priorities that you should have as a director when you're making a Halloween movie. When it comes to Michael Myers, you need to hide his eyes when he wears the mask. You need to hide his eyes as much as you can. Because the instant you see a pair of human eyeballs behind the mask, it does that extra little bit to humanize him. And I don't think that's appropriate for Michael Myers. You need to have that ambiguity. You really can't see his eyes because with eyes comes humanity, uh, there comes expression. And you shouldn't be able to read Michael Myers in in that way, I don't think. As much as possible, his eyes need to be shrouded in shadow. And that is just not a priority for Steve Miner as he directs Halloween H20. There are many shots where you see Michael Myers' Baby Blues... And I just have problems with that. It does far too much to humanize this character and does so in a way that I don't think is appropriate at all. And another sort of quibble that I've got with Halloween H20 is, I mean, offhand, I can only swear to Michael Myers killing, let me think, um, the two hockey-playing teenagers at the beginning of the movie, um, the nurse... Uh, John and What's-Her-Name's guy friend. John and What's-Her-Name's girlfriend. And Laurie Strode's boyfriend. So, six. Six people that I can think of offhand in this movie. And I think the movie's actually less than 90 minutes. And so, I mean, when you start thinking about what that averages out to on a per-minute basis, it's probably as high or higher than any other Halloween movies, uh, uh, movie in, in this series. But it's like at the same time, it just feels so anemic because like three of them are at the beginning of the movie and then the other three are kind of closer to the end. And there's really nothing in the middle, like at all. And so it just, I don't know. I just think maybe if this had been balanced out a little bit more If there had been maybe some security guard besides LL Cool J that was just wandering around in the woods next to the school or something like that. Michael Myers intercepts the guy and then he gets it somewhere in the middle. It just it just seems like there we're missing at least one or two kills that we should have in this movie. And I don't know. So so there's that. Now there's a lot to like about this movie, one of which is Michelle Williams. Now guys. Something I need to be clear about is the fact that I was not a big Dawson's Creek fan. It's just, I just never got into that show. I never saw what was supposed to be so fucking amazing about it. It it just didn't seem like this is a show for me. Uh, So anyone listening to this, if you are a huge fan of Dawson's Creek... Well, I guess this is just something where we're going to have to agree to disagree. I just never got into that show. And so as a result, Halloween H20 was the first thing that I ever uh, saw Michelle Williams in. And this was really like where I made my first impressions about her. And then as now, I've got a lot of. I've I've got a very a very favorable impression of Michelle Williams in this movie. She's she's uh, she's fun. There's a this character. She's got a lot of heart, and you could believe that there's a normalcy that she represents. That I think John, having grown up with Laurie Strode his whole life, I think he would be attracted to her just for that, not to speak of the fact that Michelle Williams is hot, which I get to say since she and I are the same age, I think actually maybe she's a year older than me, but whatever. It's not weird for me to say something like that. I can see where there's a normalcy that she embodies that would be very attractive to somebody like John, who's, he's had a pretty weird life, all things considered. And Michelle Williams's character in this movie, she's, normal and she's wholesome in ways that Lori is just not. And I'm not saying that that's the sole thing that John finds attractive about her, but it's like, it's the kind of thing that I think he would find very addictive about her. And I actually wouldn't be surprised to find out that it works out. Like, in the long term, it works out between John and Michelle Williams that they really do stay together because he's got this kind of bad boy thing going, and she's got that wholesome thing going, and i th- they just seem like they would be good together, like, in the long term, you know? And I guess in relation to that, there's John himself, who... He seems like the like a really good counterpoint to Laurie, who's basically, this is not, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that she really is a basket case in this movie. And that's really her arc. I mean, she has to start off as a basket case so that when she takes her big stand at the end of the movie, now she's got an arc. She's got someplace to go. And I like that about her. And one of the things that really makes this movie work for me is the fact that she's got a son like john who can be the voice of reason you know the voice of reason that she can't get rid of you know she has to stay with with john john has to stay with her there needs to be somebody in laurie strode's life saying look you went through something really shitty okay really shitty and i feel bad about that i i mourn with you because of that but you need to move on. I mean, look, this asshole is dead, okay? He's gone. And you need to move on with your life, all right? I'm a kid. I'm trying to grow up. I'm trying to live my life. I'm trying to build a life. And yet, here I see you. You're not even trying. You know, you're, you're, you're living under a phony name. No one really knows who you are. No one knows what your background is. No one knows where you, where you're coming from. And what's going on in your mind, the way that you're living your life is not healthy. And that's an important thing for somebody like Lori to have in her life. She needs somebody who who can say those things. And the nature of the life that she and John have built in California, I can actually believe that John would have that kind of relationship with her. He would be able to go there with her in a way that nobody else nobody else ever would because nobody else could and josh hartnett who who plays john in the movie this i don't know if this was necessarily his first movie but it is definitely one of his first movies and he he's got a lot of confidence in all of his all of his scenes and when you think about it That's the kind of balls that can really only come from youth ignorance and a lack of experience. Because when you think about it, showing up on the same set as Jamie Lee Curtis and Alan Arkin, and one could even say LL Cool J, to show up on a set like that and be confident, you need a certain amount of stupidity in order to do that. And it's the kind of stupidity that can only come from being young. And the thing is, I don't know. It's just I remember being that age. And in fact, hell, I was about that age when this movie came out. Getting there, anyway. And I remember being so young and cocky and, and sure of myself that the the confidence that John is demonstrating even if he's faking it at different points in the movie he's i just i remember being that age you know just about that age at just about that that time when the movie came out and there's a lot of authenticity that that goes into that for me it's it's um it's a good performance and like i say just to watch it you wouldn't necessarily think this is the first thing that the guy's ever done even though this may actually this may very well have been the first thing that Josh Hartnett had ever done. So it's tough to say. So anyway, all in all, this is not a perfect movie. I do not consider this to be, aside from the first movie, I don't consider this to be the, the best in the Halloween series. I might say that it's third place, a pretty close third behind Halloween four. So you've got, in the top spot, the original Halloween movie, A Distant. Number two is Halloween 4. And then from there, a very close number three is, uh, is Halloween H20. And uh, before I wrap it up here and start uh, working through some feedback... There's one other thing I want to point out as sort of prosecution's exhibit of why Halloween H20 is not actually Halloween 3. It could be Halloween 7. One of the other things I want to point to here is in the opening credits, we see a pair of bloody scissors. In this is, it looks like it's a, uh, this is a police evidence and it looks like, this is the same pair of scissors that Jamie used to stab, but not kill, her foster mother in Halloween 4, and it again just kind of lends into the to the possibility that this could be Halloween 7 as opposed to the new Halloween 3. Now... <clears throat> If it sounds like I'm vamping for time here a little bit, that would be because I am, in fact, trying to vamp for time a little bit. What I want to do is, uh, as I'm sitting here talking to you, what I want to do is uh, bring up the uh, the original Halloween and just watch that bit where my, uh, child Michael Myers uh, pulls out a, a pair of—well, he pulls out something— Whenever he uh, kills Judith Myers. And. Want to. I I just want to do. Just a quick comparison. Before I go into feedback. Just to see what's going on here. But for some reason. I can't seem to find. uh, Oh. But that's because it's called. John Carpenter's Halloween. Why do people fucking do that? God. That's annoying. All right. So. Anyway. So here we go. I'm just going to. Bring up. Uh, the movie here. Yeah. And um, you watch the, uh, you watch Halloween, uh, the original Halloween. What, what Michael does is he, he goes through the kitchen and then he, he you can see his arm come into frame. He, he pulls a, a butcher knife out of the drawer in the kitchen. And that is what he uses uh, to kill his sister and it's and so it's i guess what i'm saying is that's not the uh the pair the the pair of bloody scissors that we see uh, in the opening credits of Halloween uh H20 that's not the murder weapon for that uh, Michael Myers used in, in in the original Halloween those bloody scissors what we see in uh what or what we could be seeing is uh and I'm actually trying to find the the, the relevant section in Halloween uh, four near the very end where uh Jamie uh, stabs her uh foster mother, yeah and I'm looking at it right here she you can see it she picks up a pair of black handled uh scissors and that is uh the weapon that she attempts to use to um kill her adoptive or not again, again, not her adoptive mother, her uh, foster mother. And we see a pair of bloodied scissors that look just like that at the beginning of Halloween H20. So all in all, you know, what's a boy to think except this uh, Halloween H20, rather than being, like I say, rather than being the new Halloween 3, it could be Halloween 7. This was the seventh movie that was made this could actually, or Halloween 6, fucking, it's a sequel to Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, rather than the new Halloween 3. So anyway, take that for whatever you think it's worth. So anyway, so Halloween H20, it's a ton of fun. I enjoy this movie. And if you haven't ever seen it, or for that matter, you just haven't seen it in a really long time, I do encourage you to rewatch it and just uh see what you think. So, anyway, now getting into feedback, uh, this week I've got uh this is uh, another email again from 2015 that I probably should have read on mic years ago, but uh, haven't. But like I say, I'm I, I am getting caught up. I am uh this huge backlog of of email and stuff that I've just have never gotten through. I am getting through it. So anyway. This is from Fanboy Miss Prime, dated October the 6th, 2015. Subject line says shooting the shit between Scott Gardner and Magnus. Fanboy Miss Prime writes, Greetings, Magnus. Must say the talk on not getting Superman, Star Trek, etc., got to say one thing. Know where you and where you and S- Scott Holy shit, some people can uh some people can't take a different opinion, Gardner. Are coming from. And uh, Prime, I just want to put this on pause and say that sounds like you're kind of taking a swipe at Scott. And publicly or privately, I'm never going to take a swipe at Scott Gardner. I do consider him to be a good person. He's a good man. And I do consider him to be a friend. And the fact is, uh, he and I, especially when it comes to anything to do with Superman, he and I do have a few things that we disagree about. And he doesn't seem to be losing sleep over the fact that he and I disagree on those things. So, um, I gotta tell you, I don't really understand what, 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 what you mean here. But, uh, anyway, Prime goes on to say, I'm a Transformers, I'm a Transformers fanboy of the biggest order and Michael Bay is shit. And I've gone through my detailed reasons before and I'll punch the shit out of anyone who claims that what, uh, out of anyone that claims it was, quote, he raped my childhood, unquote. No, Bay just made horrible live-action Transformers movies that miss the point for his human characters that, given they dumped the cast of the first three and no one cared, uh, proved their staying power is nothing. And, uh, Prime, I'm gonna, uh, just interject here real quick, um, I think I I think I remember you in some previous email you explained where exactly it was that uh, the Bay Transformers movies lost you. Uh, you made my memory of it is you made a, a very reasonable, very valid, very lucid argument for why those movies are just not your your brand of vodka. And honestly, the most I could I think the and this, and, and Prime, understand, even this is me kind of swinging for the fences a little bit. But the the most I think I could do to uh, even half-ass defend the, the Michael Bay Transformers movies is to say that, to me, they're just kind of a, a fun, brainless time at the movies. And, you know, just kind of leave it at that. The last thing I would do is sit here and tell a fan of your station, what's what? You know, so I just want to put that out there. These movies are obviously nearer and dearer to you by virtue of your fandom, and that's fine. I'm just saying that I enjoy them from the standpoint of dumb, fun movies. So just take whatever you want from that. So anyway, Prime goes on to say, and also I came in way after Two True Freaks reviewed Dark Knight, and won't have given a shit about them saying bad things about it. Now, I'd have cared if they gave Batman the Brave and the Bold shit, as I care far more about that cartoon than I ever have, or ever will, care about the Nolan films. Batman the Brave and the Bold is amazing. It is something I regard as a great cartoon for kids and fanboys alike. And Prime, I'm going to put your email back on pause here and say, Hey, preach it, brother. I love The Brave and the Bold. Uh, The part of me that loves that late golden age, 1950s Batman fucking adores The Brave and the Bold. I dig that show. I dig the 1950s golden age Batman. I think that's a criminally underrated version of Batman, and it kind of pains me that people don't get into that character as much as I think they should. So, dude, I am right there with you. I love The Brave and the Bold, and... Well, anyway, I could wax fanboy about the brave and the bold all day. Anyway, get back into Prime's email, though, because this is supposed to be about him. Um, He writes, On origin stories and getting people invested, do you think we'd need another Spider-Man origin movie? As for me, my response is no. But to be honest, I'm a hardcore Marvel Comics fanboy. The things I believe should be common knowledge in comics can be slanted. In ways a guy who has read comics for over 20 years can get. And Prime, I understand where you're coming from whenever you say that, but one of the things that I want to be clear about is the fact that I don't necessarily need another Spider Man origin story on film. What I do need is a Spider Man origin story on film that does the job right. You understand? because you go back and you read amazing fantasy number 15 there's that moment where peter has the chance to to stop the thief and he chooses not to do it and what the reader is basically supposed to take from that moment is that peter was being an asshole he was he was basically Lashing out at total strangers for no reason. His actions were completely unprovoked, completely uncalled for. He could have stopped the thief and he wouldn't have even had to break a sweat doing it. He would just have to reach out and hold the guy for a second so that the cop could arrest him. He chose not to do that. He chose to behave like a complete dickhead and no one had done anything to provoke him. No one had done anything to. Uh, absolve the thief, there was no moral complexity to this situation whatsoever. That guy needed to be stopped. And a reasonable person would have at least tried to block his way or slow him down so that uh, the cop could could arrest the thief. And Peter chose not to do that. He was a complete fucking asshole about it. And that's what we're supposed to take, I think, from that little moment in Amazing Fantasy number 15. Now, you watch... Uh, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. And yeah, Peter could have stopped the the thief from robbing that wrestling promoter. But that wrestling promoter had kind he he basically ripped Peter off in the scene immediately before that. And so Peter had been wronged, you know? You can kind of understand where Peter was coming from that he let the thief go. He I think he still did wrong, and the narrative certainly paints him in a bad light for having done that but in the moment you can understand why he did what he did so there's that then in amazing spider-man uh spider-man he he had uh he or Peter he had just been inside of a, a convenience store he was off by like two cents on the chocolate milk that he wanted to buy and so he just but the clerk the cashier wouldn't he he wouldn't sell peter the chocolate milk so peter just kind of stormed out in a the huff then peter looks in and sees that same cashier getting held up by somebody and the guy tosses peter uh, the chocolate milk as he make as he makes his uh, escape into the night with his ill-gotten gains and there again Peter was out of line, but you can kind of understand where he's coming from. It's like, "Guy, come on. It's two. Fucking, are you really going to break my balls here over 2 cents?" And he's still wrong, but you can understand where he's coming from. And that's really my my problem with the the first Raimi Spider-Man movie and The Amazing Spider-Man. In both of those movies, Peter had Not a good reason, but he had a flimsy, half-assed, kind of understandable and sympathetic reason for not stopping the thief. Now, he would pay dearly for that later on, but in the moment, you can understand where he was coming from, whereas in Amazing Spider-Man number 15, you don't understand where he's coming from. He's being an asshole, and he's acting like a jerk to people who have done him no wrong whatsoever. He lets somebody go for no reason whatsoever. And that moment has never been translated onto film. And I can't help but think that these directors, Sam Raimi and Mark Webb, they don't want audiences to lose their sympathy for Peter. There's got to be some kind of way out for Peter so that he doesn't come off looking like a complete asshole. But that's the whole point. Peter was not being responsible with his powers in that moment. In Amazing uh, Space... Amazing Fantasy number 15. He was not being responsible. He was being selfish. And he learned that with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And in this case, exercising even minor responsibility would have been enough to stop the thief. But Peter had to learn that lesson in Amazing Fantasy number 15. And that's the genesis of Spider-Man. And so... Yes, I enjoy Spider-Man 2 and 3. Yes, I enjoy Amazing Spider-Man 2. But Spider-Man, like the first Raimi Spider-Man and the first Amazing Spider-Man, those are kind of harder to get into because Peter is not necessarily completely out of line in letting the thief go, as he must do. He must let the thief go. But he's not completely out of line for doing so in those movies. He's got this little 1% excuse where you can kind of understand why he did what he did. That doesn't make it okay, but you can understand where he's coming from. And I just, I've got problems with that. So yes, in a sense, I mean, look, I understand the point that you're trying to make here, Prime. The origin story has been done so much in live action. Do we really need another one at this point? And especially with, what's his name, the new guy from, uh, mcu you know what no maybe we don't need we don't need another one from like a creative standpoint but just from a fidelity to the source material standpoint yeah actually i do think we need one so anyway um moving right along uh prime says um on origin stories and people getting invested i think i already read that part anyway uh prime goes on to say so some debate there on superman Well, you've seen my 30 plus page series Bible on a Superman team up cartoon, which you would notice had only one real piece of the DC uh, in uh, DC new costume, and that was the red shirt sleeves and possibly an even bigger S symbol from the DC new Earth Two Superman comic artwork. artwork. The rest was his uh, classic version, red trunks and all. The Man of Steel himself had very little, if anything, from the current DC version in terms of his personality and such. Now, Supergirl had her DC New personality as a starting point, and to be like in the DC New, uh, grow as a character and become a hero in her own right. Uh, Power Girl built broadly on her DC New origin, as it says a lot when just having, uh, having another having one from another reality is the simple origin. Also, it probably is what helped uh, me be so mellow on the things DC has done with the new 52 onward when I can cherry pick the elements I I, I could use in a story and warp their five-year timeline to be merely five years for the current era of the heroes to start with either Superman's first public appearance or the founding of the Justice League. Also, that using the that five years thing to mean Batman has his second Robin... And all the original sidekicks of the various heroes are trying to move into new identities and such. Dick being Nightwing, Donna being Darkstar, Wally West having just become the Flash, and a hero with no secret identity and such. Amazing what a single person behind the vision and working hard to not completely screw up the guidelines I set for myself can do. And Prime, I kind of have to agree with you there. I get the idea that the whole issue with the New 52, this is something that Jeff Johns really didn't want to do, Dan DiDio desperately wanted to do, and Jim Lee kind of supported from the standpoint that it was a good time to revisit certain uh, superhero outfits and redesign some of them, rethink some of them. And honestly, I don't think the Flash and his uniform has ever, I don't think it's ever really recovered from the new 52. It just, it looked like dog shit in the new 52 and it just doesn't look like too much of anything has changed. It looks like the new 52, there may have been good intentions behind it, But it's like at the end of the day, no one involved was really committed to this. You know, what can we do to really make this work and give things a starting point that makes sense? And no one was interested in doing that. And I think, well, I think the results speak for themselves, Prime. And anyway, to go back to having, and this is getting back into Prime's email. He says, to go back to having odd opinions, One of my friends felt that Bay Transformer movies were for adults while the cartoons and such were for children. He really didn't watch Beast Wars or Transformers animated. Transformers Prime was not around then. I'd have suggested Simon Furman's body of uh, Transformers work, but there's some dross before you, you get to his good stuff. That dross being the other stuff he didn't write. James Roberts and John Barber's IDW Transformers run not having happened by that point. Though James Roberts has this very annoying habit from his Transformers fanzine days of making Star Saber into a complete and utter villainous character when in Victory, he's one of the most noble, pure, and heroic characters in the Transformers mythos. So again, really understand your hate of DC pissing on Superman as that is the one James Roberts has done Uh, with the Transformers that is fucking annoying. And, you know, Prime, I'm going to put your email back on pause and say, you know, I think this is one of those things where I'd at least want to believe that I've mellowed out a fair bit in, uh, you know, in my views over the years of how DC has mistreated and mishandled Superman. I mean, maybe it's just the fact that I think DC, as we know it, is going to cease to exist pretty soon. But it's just... Or maybe it's just the fact that I'm just getting older. I don't know. All I know is that I just—I don't really have the same fire in my belly about it as I had back in the old days when I wanted either a continuation of the Bronze Age Superman or else I wanted a continuation of the Burn Age Superman. And I didn't really care to read yet another rebooted or retconned or whatever the fuck Superman. Or just whatever else. I remember being angry about things like that, but it's just... I just don't have the same anger about that. And the thing is, Prime, you know, I waited five years to read your email here, so... You know, I'm sure at the time that you wrote this email, I probably did still have a lot of that same fire in my belly, but it's just... It's just hard to get as angry about that stuff as I used to, so... I don't know where you're coming from on that. I'd actually be interested to find out, actually. But I'm not sure where you're coming from on that, but that, that's where I am right now. So, anyway, Prime finishes up his email by saying, Also, the other writers for the Transformers live-action uh, movies went on to be the head editors uh, for Star... Or, I almost said Star Wars. <laughs> Forgive me, Prime. Uh, went on to, to be the head editors for Transformers Prime, to, quote, tell stories they couldn't tell in the live-action movies, unquote, also known as good stories, as Transformers Prime is actually really good. Yeah, I got to bring that up as it amuses me every time. Well, that was fun. Wreck and rule. Signed, Fanboyamus Prime. And Prime, thank you for uh, taking the time once again to uh, write in and uh, just let me know what you think about all this. Uh, you, You always have a lot to say. And sometimes it it, uh, touches upon fandoms that I'm very familiar with. Other times it goes outside of those fandoms. But either way, I always love hearing from you and uh, hope to hear more from you in the future. So, anyway. And that, I think, is, uh, well, pretty much it for me for right now. So, uh, as I said last week, I honestly don't know if I'm going to have another episode coming next week. But uh, either way, I'm going to try to have stuff that i can at least trickle out at least once in a while even if they're shorter episodes i just want to have something but uh i'm not making any making any promises we'll see how things go but uh either way i think that's pretty much it for me for this week so bye everybody i will see you next week feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to 2 truefreaks.com There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void were prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included, many will enter, few will win, the white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only, all models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited Production, in association with De of Milan, Italy.